Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We are no longer withdrawing into ourselves in solitude, listening to ourselves, thinking our own thoughts, reading deeply in books, encountering another mind in that silence of reading. We are constantly oriented towards not just the group, but the approval of the group. We constantly want to stay aligned with the group. We want to stay in good standing with the group, whether that's a formally defined identity group or more really, whatever group we happen to have gathered around us on social media, like the people who read our posts and who like our posts and who respond to our posts. I think it's going to change everything. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Bill, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's good to be back. Yeah, you are one of those sort of rarefied people who is here for a third time. Uh, and usually if we have somebody back more than twice, it's because uh, I enjoyed talking to them so much and learned so much uh, from them the first few times. And you have a new book out called The End of Solitude, all of which we will get into. But as you know, from our previous conversations, I like to start by asking you questions that have nothing to do with your work. Uh, but this time, actually, I think this is kind of relevant to the book. And I wanted to ask you what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did those influence what you've ended up doing with your life? Right. Um, well, as you know, I certainly answer the first question in the book because I have all sections you called my people, which mm-hmm. are uh, essays about being Jewish. Although who my people is, is a little more complicated than that, as I talk about in one of them. But there's one piece in particular called Birthrights, where I talk about growing up in an Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, this was not uh, sort of the, the ultra-Orthodox, you know, furry hats and black, long black coat Orthodox. It was what people call modern Orthodox, um, where you sort of you sort of uh, dress the same as other people, but um, but observe all the all the commandments, right? So so fully observant, keeping kosher at home, the Sabbath, the holidays. I went to religious private schools, yeshiva day schools are called, where we studied religious subjects in the morning and secular subjects in the afternoon. 
Um, and that was the world that I lived in until I was 15 and I was in 10th grade in a yeshiva high school. And I, I suddenly had doubts. I mean, I shouldn't even say that I had doubts. I suddenly realized that I didn't actually believe. And, uh, that led to, uh, a turn in my life, um, <laughs> uh, that we can talk about. Yeah, um, please. uh, well, I mean, uh, at the time I'd already been, I was already becoming very involved in a, in a progressive Zionist youth movement, you know, which was about being very idealistic and, you know, going to Israel and, uh, you know, starting or living on a kibbutz, uh, you know, collective settlement, a commune and building a better world in that country. Um, and that was, it was a tremendously positive experience for me in many ways. Uh, it's what helped me kind of, um, see that Orthodox world from a different perspective. I mean, that, that, that year in 10th grade where I kind of suddenly lost my faith was the first year after my first summer at, uh, the movement summer camp where I met for the first time, I met Jews of different kinds and I was exposed to a different way of being Jewish. Um, but ultimately that, um, that Zionist idea which would have involved, you know, moving to Israel after college and living a different kind of life, whether on a kibbutz or, or in a city. Um, you know, I realized that wasn't for me either. Uh, I, I, I took a, a look at it. I lived in Israel for a year after college. Um, but ultimately, I found that America did feel more like home than, than Israel. And, um, and I stayed here and then the question became, what was I going to do with my life? And I sort of stumbled around for several years before I realized that I, what I needed to do was what I kind of always knew that I wanted to do, which was study English lit, teach English lit, be a writer. Um, but your other question about the continuities is, uh, is an interesting one that I haven't thought about too much, but I think that, um, well, I mean, I think actually, to simplify, there was the the first part, the orthodox part, which is so much about textual study and tradition. And the second part, the youth movement part, which is about idealism and putting your your beliefs into action. And I guess those are kind of twin strains that have fed into what I do. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, as you're, as you're telling me this, I kind of just, you know, getting the sense that this would have a, it would breed a capacity for sort of a deeper level of thinking that most of us don't get taught how to do at such a young age. Would you say that's fair? Well, yeah. I mean, I think people who don't understand what Orthodox Judaism is, um, don't, uh, don't know. I mean, it, it's ultimately, once you're old enough, it becomes centered uh, I mean, especially for men, right? I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a, a sex-segregated um, uh, religion, but uh, but especially for men, uh, the idea beyond you know practice and worship is to study the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is this enormous compendium of rabbinic argument from the first five centuries uh, of the Common Era. Um, commentaries on, on the Bible, on the law. Like, you know, God says, uh, keep the Sabbath day, don't work on the Sabbath. And the rabbis say, well, what does that mean? 
And actually, the, the fa- I believe the fattest volume of the 20-something volumes in the Talmud is the one on the Sabbath, trying to understand what does that mean? And, it, and it's an elaboration of, you know, this, this huge structure of, of practice that, you know, all the different things you aren't supposed to do, all the things you are supposed to do, that, that was pulled out of the, just that one little precept in the Bible. But again, it's not a, it's not a code of law. It's the record of rabbinic arguments. One rabbi thinks it should be this way. The other rabbi thinks it should be that way. They argue it out. They cite textual evidence. And this is a tradition that's continued. I mean, like I said, the Talmud was was finally redacted uh, about, you know, in the fifth century. But that tradition has continued. And when you go to a, a house of study or when you study at a yeshiva high school, uh, you're continuing that argument. So basically, it's an it's like, it's not an accident that there are a lot of Jewish lawyers. It's like the the profession, the, the the religion, is a uh, is a training in 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 argument and in close textual <laughs> and in close textual study. Yeah. Well, obviously, you didn't become a lawyer. You became an. I academic almost class. became a lawyer. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I, not, I don't think you've ever told me that. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, I didn't know. I you know I get, I get back from Israel and. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And it was 1986. And uh, one of the things that people did, especially back then, before the whole Wall Street consulting thing really opened up, it was just beginning to open up, was, you know, I'll go to law school. I mean, there's still writers or, you know, English majors. I think, you know, the Yale English department that I taught in is basically a, a, a factory for producing future lawyers. If you look at what yeah. most graduates do. So I applied mm-hmm. to law schools, and, but before I accepted uh, any of the acceptances, I realized, like, do you, I don't really want to do this. I'm only doing this because I don't know where to put myself, and I should, you know, pump the brakes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you actually stopped yourself from doing that. There are a lot of people who don't. In fact, I would argue that the overwhelming majority of us don't. We just kind of go on to the next step without taking the time to, you know, explore the, the question of, of values and, and meaning things that I would have just written off as nonsense when I was 20, because I didn't understand them to me. It was like, no, I need to go get a job that looks good on my resume and pays well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, so I'm sorry, was there a question there? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question then is like, why is it that that capacity to pause and reflect is not developed at an earlier age? Oh, well, look, I mean, we're talking about two different things, right? So, I mean, maybe you're not equating these. Like when I'm talking yeah. about, you know, sort of the legalistic education you get as a yeshiva boy, that's right. different from self-reflection, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that I had a great capacity. I mean, the truth is where I started to learn to self-reflect was in youth movement, where they did a lot of values clarification exercises. What's important to you? What do you, what do you, you know, what do you think is important in the world? Um, it was a yet another step. And this is something I tried to guide my own students with. And a lot of my writing is about this. It's yet another step for a college student to, or a young adult to, to really, you know, to, to do what you're talking about now, to say, mm -hmm. okay, I know I need to get a job and I know people are telling me, I mean, my father was devastated when I decided not to go to law school. He really was. No. He, he raised me to become a doctor. And then when I decided that wasn't going to work out, he was in despair and, you know, then law school, terrific. Uh, and then I'm like, no, you know, it's like the world does not support that. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, you're sort of like meaning, purpose, this is stupid, you're wasting your time, you're gazing at your navel. But what do you end up with? I mean, you end up with a lot of people who are really happy with, with the way their lives have turned out. You know, I mean, there's, there's studies about this, there's surveys about this. Doctors tend to be really unhappy. Lawyers and bankers tend to be really unhappy. You know, you could look at divorce, you can look at uh, substance abuse, you can look at depression in those groups. Um, teaching students 
teaching young people to give themselves the opportunity to do that is really hard um, for all the reasons that we're talking about, all the pressures, uh, the sense that it's not valid, the fact that, that nobody's really taught, they don't even know how to do it. They don't even know how to begin to, you know, how do I figure out what, who I am? What is I want to do with my life? I've just been putting one foot in front of the other. I've just been jumping through one hoop after another, AP courses and extracurriculars and get into the best college I can, get into the best whatever graduate school I can. To start to break in, to start to break into that. Um, can I, can I just say one more thing? Yeah, please. So I have a friend here in Portland who is a psychotherapist who just published a really good book called Quarter Life, uh, The Search for Self in Young Adulthood. Her last name is B-Y-O-C-K, Satyam Bayak, Quarter Life. I'm going to buy it right um, after we get off. That sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah, and it's because her therapy practice focuses on young adults, yeah. people in their 20s, maybe, maybe thir- early 30s. And, and she talks about how there are kind of two drives or two fundamental needs. And one is the need for meaning and one is the need for stability. We need both of those things. And I would never uh, negate the need for stability, which means, you know, getting a job and having a career path and all that stuff. The problem is that often one gets lost at the expense of the other. Mm-hmm. Usually it's meaning is lost at the expense of stability. That's what we've been talking about. Sometimes it's the other way around, you know, the sort of stereotypical searcher who doesn't know what to do with themselves and is always pursuing meaning, but never achieves stability and is miserable for that reason. Yep. And finding that balance, finding a way to have meaning in life, but also have stability is hard. It's, it's psychologically hard. It's practically hard. But I think it's the work that young adults need to do. Yeah. Well, speaking of young adults, I mean, you and I first connected because of your first book, uh, the Miseducation, you know, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite. And, uh, you know, one, I, I, you wrote a lot about education in this book from both sides of the coin, both from the sort of side of the educator and the side of the student. And I brought up a, a clip from, our previous conversation, uh, the, the first one that we had, uh, and I wanted to revisit that with you. Take a listen. Sure. We've recreated our educational system in the image of neoliberalism so that people are only thought of, the only function of an educational system is thought of to produce as producing producers, training people for the job market. So the thing that you go into in this book are the disadvantages of an elite education. And you and I are both alumni of elite educational institutions. And it's funny because reading these disadvantages to me, I was just kind of like, yep, yep, yep. And I was just like, basically I could connect a person I knew with everything that you say. And you, you say that the first disadvantage of an elite education is how very much of the human it alienates from you. Can you yeah. expand on that? Because we really like we put this value on elite education in a way that is so crazy at this point in our lives. Like I, I think I, you may agree with this sentiment, but I, and Scott Galloway said the same thing. Most of us joke about the fact that we could not get into our own alma maters today. Yeah, right. It's become 
it's become this, I mean, the rat race is now decades old and it just feeds on itself and it's become more and more insane. And, you know, schools with 20% acceptance rates now have 5% acceptance rates. Um, look, I mean, we, I mean, we could talk about this. I'm not necessarily philosophically impo- opposed to the existence of institutions that, you know, that call the sort of the, the, the intellectual and creative elite and train them and sort of it disproportionately produced the leadership class. The question is, you know, where are we now with this and what kinds of people are they producing and what effects are they having on society? And and when I talked about, you know, how it cuts you off from the human, I, I meant that in two directions. I think it cuts you off from your, your, your own full humanity in ways that I was just talking about and maybe in other ways that we can talk about. But it also cuts you off from the human beings around you. I mean, these are these are very demographically segregated institutions. And I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about status and class, right? I mean, overwhelmingly students come from the upper middle class or the upper class. Mm-hmm. And because those classes have residentially segregated, I mean, people have talked about this. I think there's a book called The Big Sword. Um, but basically, instead of, you know, in an earlier age, People of different classes were in more intimate contact with one another, and also people of different political persuasions. I think that's really what the big sword is about. We're in contact with one another. And now you have student bodies at elite colleges that come overwhelmingly come from communities that are uh, socially and ideologically or politically homogenous, right? So they really don't know what the rest of the country is like. And, and it's not just that they don't know what like you know, red state people or Trump voters or working class white people are like, they don't know what most black and Hispanic people are like. They don't know what most, you know, middle class white people who vote Democratic are like because they're confined to like a 10 percent at best slice of the country. Um, And also cutting off from humanity uh, you're kind of taught to believe that you're superior to everybody. I mean, this mm-hmm. is like a relentlessly, uh, um, uh, a message that's, that's inculcated relentlessly. I mean, like literally you get to college and the college president or maybe the dean of the, the, the university president or dean of the college will say, you are the most extraordinary class we've ever enrolled. And of course, the whole premise is that just being at a school like that, you're extremely extraordinary and other people are beneath you. You don't need to listen to them. You don't need to know them. Uh, all you need to do is sort of, you know, tell them what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's funny that, you know, when, when you say all this, I, uh, this is something I said before, where, you know, you go to a place as diverse as Berkeley, and then before you know it, what is supposed to be this place of diversity feels, by the time you graduate, like a breeding ground for conformity where yeah. it's just breeding future bankers, doctors, lawyers, and software engineers. Yeah. Uh, and, and to your point, demographically, especially now that, you know, I'm spending a summer in Brazil, like, you know, just going from neighborhood to neighborhood, you see this difference. You're just like, whoa, okay. Here in Copacabana, where, you know, the people are mainly tourists or upper middle class and wealthy versus you go over to a favela and you're like, this is like a different world. It's like a different country. You don't even yeah. see how that group of people lives. But yeah, I mean, I, it's funny you say that because like I, I worked at McDonald's in high school and that was my uh, first job. And I think the most valuable lesson I took from that was 
this is a stepping stone for me. This is everyday life for almost everybody else here. Wow. Yeah. And, and that, I think that experience of doing like a service, doing service work in high school to, you know, make pocket change. Um, I think fewer and fewer elite college students do that. I mean, I, I really had almost no students who I was aware of as having done that because it's not something that looks good on your resume, but I think it's yeah. one of the best, um, one of the best experience, educational experiences you can have. I mean, you, you know, you learned that, which is a great lesson, but I would also venture to say that you just like, got to know what people like that are like without, mm -hmm. you know, and don't have to rely so much on like ridiculous, stupid stereotypes of the kind that the liberal elite tend to have about the rest of the country now. Yeah. Well, I, I had a, a mentor who basically is probably the most influential person in terms of shaping the show. And he did this project where he uh, walked, visited all 50 states to work one on one 500 people. And he actually told me, he said that when you live on the coast in one of these sort of elite pockets like Silicon Valley or San Francisco, you are not seeing the reality of what it's like to live in America. Uh, he said he went to places where they still didn't have high speed Internet access. Yeah. And I remember driving through a town in the middle of Utah on my way to Colorado when I was moving there. And I was looking at this and it was five o'clock on a Monday night. And it was Main Street. And I'm thinking to myself, this place looks like a ghost town. No wonder these people are pissed off. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's great to do that. I think, you know, if we want to talk about the answer to this, it's not going to be like individuals driving around the country, although that's a great, right. it's a great thing, yeah. but people aren't going to have a, really have a chance to do that. It's, I mean, it needs to happen at the root. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this segregation of the elite into their own bubbles is just uh i mean that's what needs to be broken down now how is that going to happen i mean who knows how that's going to happen um no. but 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 the first step is for the elite to understand this about themselves which i really don't think they do mm. wow. well let's talk about it from the other side because you also write about the fact that you left academia and yeah. it's and yet another thing that I'm intimately familiar with, because my dad is a professor. I saw the reality of how hard that life is until he got tenured. Yeah. Yeah. And you say basically that now the system is in danger of falling into ruin. Public higher education was essential to creating the mass middle class of the post-war decades. And with it, a new birth of political empowerment and human flourishing and the defunding of public higher education has been essential to a slow destruction. But you also talk about the role that the system in and of itself plays when you talk about sort of, you know, what graduate students are there for versus undergrads. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about that, because you say that academics are awarded for one thing, only research, scholarly publication. Nothing else counts. Anything else is a step toward professional suicide. I can tell you I've had that experience firsthand because you go to a place like Berkeley where it's like, oh, all these professors are Nobel laureates and most of them are terrible teachers. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. So how, how, you know, what is the, the, the key to this? Because it seems like the purpose of graduate students is to produce more PhDs, not necessarily educate. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, this is an old problem in American higher education. This is, as I've talked about in a number of essays, um, a foundational problem 
to the to the modern research university, which emerges in the late nineteenth century, um, as what you know was sometimes called a knowledge factory. All of a sudden, the the scholarly disciplines are actually making some real progress in the nineteenth century. You know, chemistry and physics and the social sciences all come into being at that time, and and higher education becomes a completely different thing, right? Before it was, especially in America, it was these uh, church-affiliated colleges. We didn't have universities. Now we import from Germany this new model of the research university and the research professor, uh, somebody who gets a PhD, somebody whose responsibility is to produce knowledge. And already by 1903, William James, the great Harvard psychologist, wrote an essay called The PhD Octopus and how this res- this research model or the res- this research regime was strangling everything, um, including the ability of, stu- of, of scholars to kind of, kind of be broad individuals. Um, but this is the reality. And, and gradually across the 20th century, the research model spread from the big, the major research universities to kind of every institution because every professor now has to get a PhD no matter where you teach. And the PhD is a research degree. And you are, your primary affiliation or identification is with your field, with your discipline, not with your school, wherever you end up landing. So throughout your career, you continue to be judged by and rewarded by your field, judged by your field, rewarded for your scholarly work. Any second taken away from that work, specifically for teaching, which of course demands a lot of time, uh, is a, is a step towards career suicide. Um, or, or career, or if you already have tenure career stagnation. Uh, right. And, and this is why, and there's a, there's a good book that came out a year or two ago, a guy named Jonathan Zimmerman. It's called the amateur hour. And it's a history of college teaching in America. I think it's the first history of college teaching in America. And he talks about, like, if you think teaching is bad now and it's suddenly gotten bad, no, it's always been bad. And students have always complained about it. Yeah. So you left, obviously, uh, and you kind of gave me an idea as to why. Because uh, I wrote an essay called Why wasn't... I Left. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah, exactly um yeah so you're at a point where you actually decided that this just wasn't for you and you of all things decided to go and become a writer and an artist but wait and wait what i have wait, talked wait, about, wait hang on before yeah. you finish your question the whole thing i say in the essay is that i didn't decide this was a decision ah. that was made for me i didn't want to leave This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's right. And now I remember. So but I, I, I did leave as there. the result of decisions I was making that I knew were probably going to hurt me, like spending more time in my teaching than I than the minimum, writing, doing writing that wasn't just scholarly writing. I did some of that, but I also wrote, you know, book reviews for the New York Times. Uh, so in the end, I thought I would be able to get my next academic job. I just never did. And yes, and then I left and I decided to become a writer. Is there a way out of this mess in academia? Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, it's, it's, again, it's easy to talk about solutions and very, very difficult to implement them. So, I mean, yeah. um, uh, it's, it, it could just be a matter that's as simple as, uh, institutions deciding to care more about teaching, to incentivize teaching for their faculty. So you come up for tenure, you come up for promotion. I mean, they, they look at your, te- I mean, they look at your teaching now, but they don't really care. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pro forma. Um, but, but the possibility of someone who's a great teacher, but a weak scholar being tenured, uh, or just the possibility of two different 
tracks, but equally valued and, and paid equally well, like teaching professors and research professors or some combination of the two. People have been talking about this for a while. So universities could do that. And I think one thing, probably the only thing that would make them do that is if students and their families said, you know, we insist that you do this. We, I mean, students are in a survey show this, my own anecdotal experience, having traveled to many different schools and given talks and talked to students. I mean, students are incredibly disappointed with their college education, with it, with the teaching they get. They may get a few good teachers, but most of the teachers stink and they hate it. So they need to put pressure on that. And then the other thing that you referred to, I think, earlier, you read from one of the essays, is that there's been a systematic defunding of higher education. So if you go back to the early 70s, three quarters of the costs of state universities were paid by the states, which is to say by the taxpayers. Three quarters by the states, one quarter by the by students. Now it's flipped around. It's one quarter by the states and three quarters by the students. And this is why we had this, we've had this explosion in student debt. I should say that, you know, the vast majority of American college students go to public universities. And if public universities were cheaper, the private ones would also have to be cheaper. So, um, one of the, one of the ways that schools have adjusted to, to being starved of funds is to turn teaching over to low cost adjuncts and other, other low-cost labor like postdocs or graduate students or full-time non-tenure track instructors who are on like three-year contracts or one-year contracts um, and who get paid a lot less than professors. Uh, um, This is, um, this is, uh, this is, this is why academia is such a terrible profession to go into now, why it's so hard to find a tenure track position because they've just been eliminated. I mean, many, many, many of them have been eliminated, even though the student enrollments haven't necessarily dropped. Let's get into the sort of transition to making a a living as a writer. And on that note, I also want to revisit a, a clip from our previous conversation about the death of the artist. Take a listen. People need to hear this. And I talked to all these artists, musicians, writers, indie filmmakers, uh, and I asked them very intimate questions about their financial lives, the kinds of things that you're not supposed to talk about here, so they're not supposed to ask about. They were very generous with revealing this stuff to me. And many of them said, the reason I'm doing this, even though it's uncomfortable to talk about, is that I wish somebody had told me this when I was starting out. Was young artists need to hear the truth. And the point is not to discourage people from pursuing a career in the arts. The last thing I'd want to do it's, as you said, to give them a realistic picture amidst all of the optimism that's being sold to them. What I wonder is, when you made this transition, did you do so with the kind of realism you're talking about? Oh, uh, the transition to being a writer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a pretty good idea. Not as, not as detailed an idea about the whole situation as I got from uh, doing the research for Death of the Artist. This was back in 2008. Um, but yeah, I had a pretty good idea. And I did not think I'd be able to make a living as a writer. I, I wanted to continue to write. I actually thought, ironically, that I would be making most of my money being a college essay tutor or an SAT tutor, which is 
you know, sort of a sector that I deplore the existence of because it sort of gives advantages <laughs> to rich kids. But I mean, I had to make a living, right? And I was getting myself yep. set up to do that. And fortunately, just sort of serendipitously, I managed to, you know, sort of circumstances were such that I didn't end up having to do that. And I've managed to sustain myself uh, for 14 years now. But look, I mean, uh, things are really, uh, well, I don't know. What, what, uh, I'll let you ask the next question. Well, the reason I wanted to bring that clip back in particular is because of the essay that you wrote in this book about the graduation speech that you gave to an arts college where you actually say that, you know, actually being able to create, to make it and not just fake it is really valuable. I said that we get back to that word value. Creativity is a value because it is felt to be valuable, valuable in the sense that in which everyone implicitly means the word valuable valuable in the market. Creativity makes you employable. More important, it makes you viable in an age when employability is less and less a relevant issue. But you also talk about this idea of the fetish that market the marketplace has made of creativity. Yeah. Um, just talk to yeah. me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, that is a graduation speech at a small uh, art college in uh, Portland that I gave a few years ago. Um, and I mean, partly, I mean, I don't, I don't mean this cynically. I was also, I was trying to make them feel good about what they were doing and their parents. It was a graduation ceremony and like, you know, and I was trying to explain to them and their parents that actually their degree, I mean, they, they were getting a BFA, you know, they had chosen not to go to a regular college. There was a lot of practical value in that because creativity, uh, as you just, you know, as you just quoted is sort of a, is a market value now. So on the one hand, I'm saying, I mean, I'm kind of saying things in two different directions. On the one hand, I'm saying, uh, you actually have been taught marketable skills. You may just not realize it. You know, unspoken, unspoken premise here is like making your art probably won't make you a lot of money, at least at first. But there are all kinds of other things that you have learned because business wants creativity you just won't be paid to do the thing you want to do. Uh, but then yesterday I go on and talk about how creativity has been debased as a concept because it's become a business concept. So we, uh, we understand it in terms of creating something that's marketable, creating something in service to the corporate world, uh, which is part of the way that art has been, you know, you know, art, the kind of stuff that those students really did want to make uh, has been devalued. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, I think just the nature of this book made me want to approach it, uh, you know, not necessarily in the order that you wrote it. Uh, I want to go to the beginning of the book where you say if there's a single theme that joins the essays in this book, it's my attempt to defend and as well to enact a certain conception of the self. Uh, and you go on to talk about sort of solitude and social media and technology. And there's one thing that struck me early on that you said is that celebrity and connectivity are both ways of becoming known. This is what the contemporary self wants. It wants to be recognized. It wants to be connected. It wants to be seen, if not by the millions on Survivor or Oprah, then by the hundreds on Twitter or Facebook. The great contemporary terror is anonymity. Yeah. So one, I think how we got here is pretty obvious, but what are the impacts of that on the sense of self? Yeah. I mean, that's the question that I address in that first section of the book on technology culture. 
um, you, that's the title essay you just quoted, The End of Solitude, uh, which I published in 2009. It was a, a response to the, to my having joined Facebook a year earlier and my same time as all of my friends, we were in our forties. Um, and I was kind of seeing what was happening to me and them and just our whole, suddenly this, I mean, it may be hard to remember the world before social media when it was just social. <laughs> it wasn't social media. And our lives, our social lives were lived in person or on the telephone. Um, we did have email by that point. But all of those, I mean, there's technology involved in some of them, but they're all fundamentally the same. And then social media comes along and it's a completely different story. And, and suddenly everyone's on it. And suddenly our social lives have migrated to it. Uh, and I, and I, I thought, and I think even more now that it's had profound implications for our, our selfhood, you know, who, you know, the, the, the whole, I, I, I do think it may be grandiose, but I think the whole nature of selfhood is changing. And I talk in that, you know, you also quoted the preface, especially the end of the preface, where I talk about there's this thing called the modern self, or that I think of as the modern self, the self of the last few centuries, which understood itself, among other things, understood itself. You know, modernity comes out of traditional society where we lived in small communities and and uh, were defined by the identities that were ascribed to us at birth, right? Like, you know, your dad was a butcher, then you were a butcher, or your mom was the wife of a farmer, you were going to marry a farmer, and you knew what you were going to do with your life, and you knew what you believed. And all of a sudden, modernity smashes open all the old structures, all the economic structures and the structures of belief, and all of a sudden, everything's up for grabs. And you, you within limits, get to define for yourself who you're going to be and what you want to believe. And you're no longer confined by the group. I mean, in a lot of ways, to get back to what we just what we started by talking about, I kind of grew up in a traditional world. I mean, this modern Orthodox world, yes, it's modern, but in a lot of my parents were immigrants. I mean, in some ways they were immigrants into modernity. So I grew up as kind of a throwback, like this is what you're going to believe. This is the world that you're going to live in. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so the modern self is the self that's able to define itself against the group uh, in in a in a in 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 an independence in contradistinction to the group, the word individual, as we understand it, as we're using it in this sense, was invented in the late 18th century. It was in, it was coined by Rousseau, who was sort of an exemplary modern individual, self-defining individual, and and art and and thought uh, played a great role in all of that. The whole role of art, as I talk about it in the Death of the Artist, changes completely. Uh, with the coming of modernity, you know, instead of just affirming, you know, what the king and the pope want you to say, all of a sudden art is speaking new truths and the individual turns to art as a way of working out their own understanding of the world. Now I feel that all of this is under threat. And one of the main things it's under threat by is the connectivity that the internet in general and social media in particular have brought into our lives. So all of a sudden we're constantly um, we're, we, we are no longer withdrawing into ourselves in solitude, listening to ourselves, thinking our own thoughts, reading deeply in books, encountering another mind in that silence of reading. We are constantly oriented towards not just the group, but the approval of the group. 
we constantly want to stay aligned with the group. We want to stay in good standing with the group, whether that's a formally defined identity group or more really whatever group we happen to have gathered around us on social media, like the people who read our posts and who like our posts and who respond to our posts. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is going to, I think it's going to change everything. No. Yeah. You know, I, I was going back through Kelly Newport's book, Deep Work, recently just that because I wanted to review it. And there was something that he had said uh, in that book about how quitting social media would basically make you aware of the reality of your status as a content producer. But mm. the thing I think that really stood out was what he said about how social media sort of, you know, shortcutted, you know, the path to attention. He said part of what fueled social media's rapid ascent, I contend, is its ability to short circuit this connection between the hard work of producing real value mm. and the positive rewards of having people pay attention mm. to you. And I read that about a dozen times yeah, before because I, I, I'm a big fan of Cal's and uh, I've been a guest on his podcast, like we're friends. And I kind of started to think back to sort of the tipping point at which my work changed for the better and it eventually led to a book deal. And I thought to myself, yeah, like I basically stopped paying attention to what everybody else was doing and I quit. Julian Smith was another person who clued me into this. He told me, I don't read blogs. I only read books and I don't read books. I read books that other people don't read. And he had one of the most popular blogs on the internet, mm. which I thought, what a strange paradox, but it all makes sense yes. after reading through some of what you said about this, because I, what it eventually led to was this article that I'm breaking on titled why quitting social media will help you create better content. Yeah. Um, because I realized what it was is that you don't have any space mentally for thought, for original thought. Yeah. Yes. And I also think, you know, that, that you're just, you know, if you're reading blogs, if you're reading Twitter, you're just absorbing. It's just, everyone's just passing around the conventional wisdom and the hot takes and, and, um, uh, it's, it's just very stale and repetitive and predictable. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I think, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know Cal Newport's work, but when you talked about the short circuiting of the connection between producing value and getting attention, I immediately thought of, um, influencers. Influencers are, yeah, this yeah. is, you know, right. Which like, like 50% of young people aspire to be influencers or some insane number like that, because it just seems, you know, it's like you don't actually have to do anything. You just have to like set your camera up right and just be your fabulous self and you'll get all these cookies from the world. Mm hmm. It's almost like the, it was like the inevitable direction in which this is all going. Yeah. I, I, if anybody ever introduces me as an influencer, I'm like, please, for the love yeah. of God, don't yeah. ever say that. That yeah. is like the ultimate yeah. insult. And you should never brand yourself as one either. Because it, like I, I had, I, I've probably written this somewhere. I was like, influencers don't influence shit other than their own egos. You know who influences something? The woman who works three jobs to put food on the table for, for, for her family. That's influence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it just, it takes me back to a David Brooks book, The Road to Character, where he talks about all those people who nobody's ever heard of who mm. had these profound impacts on people in their lives. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's just, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's very necessary, but it's hard to talk to this, uh, talk about this to people 
who are who are marinating in this attention economy all the time. Yeah. I mean, I I just want to say the one obvious sort of um milestone or intensification of what we're talking about that's happened since that essay came out in 2009 is the iPhone, right? Um, because now, I mean, you know, I was talking about a situation where you're, you know, you're on social media on your laptop, but it's not following around all the time. But, but now it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's literally for many people, I think it's just every waking moment or, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was uh, Johan Hari wrote this book called Lost. Uh, yeah, I no, Lost Connections was the first book. I don't remember the name of it, but he was saying in that book that basically Facebook makes money for every second that you spend on their platform, yeah. and everything about it is designed to keep bringing you back. Yeah, right. But 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 I mean, it, it may be a small point, but we we should not forget that the other piece is the smartphone, right? Because mm-hmm. before, yeah, I mean Facebook, but then. You know, you, you, it wasn't always present to you. You're not on your laptop as you're walking down the street, but, but with, with the smartphone, it's always there. It's in your pocket. So with that in mind, let's talk about how we can get back to this sort of place of solitude that actually leads to these things, because you say solitude can involve introspection. It can involve the concentration of focused work. And it can involve sustained reading. All of these help you to know yourself better. And yet you're basically fighting this environment that you've created that's with you 24-7. Yeah. But, and you're not going to tell people, hey, you know, just take a hammer and smash the thing into a million pieces because I need it for things. Like you said, it's the environment that you've created. So yeah. I like to make the analogy with television. Television came in after the war and it was taken up very rapidly. It was this amazing, addictive new drug that came right into your home that, and all of a sudden from it not existing, uh, it went to, in a lot of houses, it's just on all the time. I grew up watching television, you know, hours of television a day. Basically I would get home, I would quickly do my homework and I would just watch TV I was interrupted by dinner. I watched more TV. I went to sleep. Um, at a certain point, I realized that I didn't want to watch, spend my life watching TV. And uh, it was all junk and it was all stupid. I mean, it wasn't a very late point. I was in college, you know. And uh, and so I just stopped watching TV. And for years, I didn't. I didn't own a television. And then I heard that TV was good again. Uh, you know, HBO, Sopranos, 1999 or thereabouts. So I got a TV and I started watching again, but I was able to manage, I was able to manage my consumption. You know, maybe it's an hour a night. Um, that's what we need to do with our phones. That's what we need to do with social media. Um, telling people to smash their phone isn't going to work for the reason that you said. We use it. It's a Swiss army knife. We use it for everything. But also people want to stay, this is how people stay connected, right? It is true that this is how people stay connected. And for a lot of people, it's necessary to be on social media professionally. So the issue, the the necessity here is self-control. The necessity is realizing that you're addicted and doing what anybody has to do in order to break the grip of an addiction. Uh, if if it's not eliminated completely, it's it's mustering the willpower by whatever mechanisms you need to to uh to not let it 
run your life the way it's doing now. And I believe that people can do that. I mean, I hear, I, I read stuff of, you know, people writing about this stuff as if they're helpless before it. You know, all this cultural commentary about what it's doing to us and TikTok and this and that. It's like, you, 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 you seem to assume that they're, that we are just helpless before this, but we're not. Well, I guess this is kind of a, a funny question to, to sort of get, bring us full circle because each of your previous books, there's sort of one key message that you wanted us to take away, you know, the ed- miseducation of the American elite, the death of the artist. And this one has a lot of messages combined together. What do you want people to know? Like, why did you write this book? Well, just to be clear, this is a collection of essays on a lot of different topics. Most of these were pub- were previously published. A few of them are new. I wanted to gather my best work together between covers so that it was all available in one place. Um, it was sort of a, also a statement about, you know, who I am as a writer, what I've been doing these last 15 years. Um, this is, you know, this is sort of, you know, my greatest hits. Uh, and I think it offers a lot of different things to the reader because it's about a lot of different things. We've been talking about technology culture. We've been talking about higher education. Uh, there are essays on the arts. There are essays on, on thinkers that have been important to me. As I mentioned, essays thinking about my Jewishness and what it means to be part of a group. There's a section that kind of ranges, you know, called the social imagination that's about all kinds of different things. There's an essay on Mad Men, and then there's an essay on uh, Bill Cunningham, who was a, you know, fashion photographer. Um, so it isn't just one message, and that's not the point of it. The point of it is to is to be able to dip into a lot of different things. You know, I'm following my interests and my thoughts, and I'm inviting the reader along on the on the journey. Amazing. Well, I have one final question, which yeah. I've asked you, you multiple yes. times at this point. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Right. No, I, I knew this question was coming. And um, I think it's a it's a great question to end this one on in particular, because yeah. we were talking before about the modern individual what or just the individual. What does it mean to be an individual? And I think, I mean, literally the words individual as an adjective and unmistakable are the, are synonymous. Um, I think that, uh, I think that we all, I do still think even in the age of social media and the conformity that it creates, that we all still want to believe that we're unique, that we all still want to be unique. And I think that we are all unique. Um, so the question is, how do you, how do you become that unique individual that isn't just being the person that the group wants you to be? And um, what makes you that? I mean, in, in, in a sense, you know, this is what the essays in the book kind of, this is the idea that the essays in the book cluster around. So I'm not sure that there's one answer to what, what can make you that. But I think, um, I think a kind of, I mean, I do say that in the, I do say this in the end of the end of Solitude essay. And I talk about Thoreau, who of course was a great exponent and proponent of Solitude. Um, is that he was willing to be unpopular. And I think, I think it takes a willingness, a willingness to be different, to be unmistakable and to, and, 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 um, a, a belief in the validity of that. Like your individual experience, your individual difference 
your individual uh, uh, opinions are valid and valuable, whether they're affirmed by others or not. Amazing. Uh, well, thought-provoking, insightful, and interesting, as always. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and the book? Uh, my website, billderezowitz.com. Uh, if you can spell Derezowitz, you can find it, or you can just uh, search for The End of Solitude, which is available wherever books are sold. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.